0: three years or so since I've been here so uh, hopefully some of you haven't forgotten how to understand Australian Uh, and uh, it's nice to be back. You will notice we've set up a new Q&A website since I was here last so if you're not brave enough to put your hand up and ask questions towards the end of the evening, you can always write a question to that website uh, or you can go there and have a look at all the questions that have been asked. Are we gonna deal with dinosaurs, Noah or creation? Well, if we don't touch the section you wanna cover tonight, that's one reason we have a question time. You'll notice downstairs, as per previous, we have a book table, a book display where they serve you coffee and tea and donuts and all sorts of interesting things down there. And it includes quite a few new ones. Uh, This gentleman is a professor of synthetic chemistry, at the University of British Columbia and he's been incredibly helpful to our work because he's been willing to take a stand and say, yes, I'm a well-published scientist, yes, I'm a professor of chemistry, yes, I lecture at a prestigious university and no, I can no longer believe in the millions of years. You had to finish making man by coffee break on the sixth day or you wouldn't get the job done. Of course, if you want to know why Professor Ed Nealon says that, you'll have to buy the DVD from Randall downstairs on the book table. But, you see, isn't it true over here? Some of you heard me on William Crawley yesterday, oh, sorry, Sunday, and their attitude is there are no real scientists that believe in six days of creation. Well, he does, and he's a well-published real scientist. And, of course, we have quite a few other DVDs that are documentaries, And we'd encourage you to have a look at those or go to our main website uh, and uh, have a look at some of the free materials as well as the ones that are not so free. Okay, did you notice the advertising tonight? Because uh, our brother David asked, could we deal with the Grand Canyon? And as I was preparing it today, I was thinking over, since I've arrived in Ireland, what's the commonest questions I've been asked? We went to the Giant's Causeway yesterday and discovered that those rocks have been here for 60 million years. So don't be surprised that William Crawley, the science teachers today in the school I was at, and many of the students, their common question is, how could you believe in six days of creation or the history from Adam to the present if the world is so old? So today I'm going to be talking about the Grand Canyon subject the biggest hole in the world but um, I'm going to limit myself to issues dealing with how long did the rocks take to get there is there millions of years in it and what about the fossils Hmm. okay I don't know if you've been to the Grand Canyon but it is impressive Uh, I uh, took these pictures out of an aeroplane and it's a mighty big hole in the ground it changes shape for some 400 kilometres, just over 200 and something miles. It's impressive. Quite amazing, really. You haven't got a hole this big in Ireland, have you? In fact, is Ireland this big? Um, this is a big place. Uh, as you follow down the canyons and as you travel over it, you notice one thing. It's out in the middle of a very desert country. But I just don't fly over things. I hop out of the aeroplane and walk down them and just, I've been to the Grand Canyon many times and you see these rocks here? That's the Coconino Sandstone and if you really want some exercise, it's 10 miles down to the bottom. And as you pass the Coconino Sandstone, you'll notice all of these layers with lots of angles in them. Hmm, sandstone is sand that's turned to stone. Of course, some of you are experts in the question, how long does sand take to turn to stone, even though you've never thought of the question. You've actually made cement and you took sand and you took water and you took gravel and you mixed it with cement and made concrete, correct? Did it take time or did it take a process? You see, you can even make the, the sand and the cement go hard even when it's underwater. Because what's involved is not time, but process. One of our men is an oil geologist. Oil geologists have to dig holes through rocks, sometimes for kilometres. And then they have to reinforce the edge so it doesn't cave in. And so Robert Stewart, who works with Creation Research, who's dug many oil wells, said, listen, one of the things we've discovered is if you mix the sand and the cement and the water with 3% salt, it will set in five minutes. You don't need time. You need a process. And the more efficient the process, the less time you need. And what's interesting, the first time I went down the Grand Canyon, I uh, looked at all of these little tracks and scratches in the rocks they even have that specimen in one of the museums so you have sand that's turned to stone you have tracks along some of the layers and uh, in between the layers well there's the sandstone there and there's a very red rock and it almost looks like someone has spread butter on top of chocolate brickle bread the line is so crisp And of course, you get there and they tell you these rocks are hundreds of millions of years old. And the Grand Canyon took 20 or 30 million years to form as that river way down there actually carved it all out. Now, we do have a main website and uh, you can go and see some of the research we do even the stuff on the Grand Canyon, because we're going to be concentrated on taking you down to where that arrow is. But if you want to go to our main website and check up anything, whether it's the tapiat Sandstone or whatever, creation research, click search, then uh, end up in the Grand Canyon. But I do have to give you a warning. In case you do that, you will go to our website, which is being refurbished, has been for the past few months. It's a massive job after many years of having it up there. And you will see a little warning sign. Beware missing links. Think about it. Um, We can't guarantee that all the links on this work yet until the whole job is finished. Okay, the biggest hole in the world, part two. Uh, You've heard of Richard Dawkins? You see, William Crawley is one of his friend disciples, call it what you like. And William Crawley used to go to a Presbyterian church here in Ireland, but the issue of the age of the rocks and the theory of evolution really blew him away. And now he says, if there's a God. And he doesn't believe the days of Genesis could be real days at all. And one of the leading proponents of that is Professor Richard Dawkins. He visited Australia earlier this year and um, he actually lectured at a university I was going to do a debate at shortly after. He was there to address the atheist convention and to promote this. You see last year he and David Attenborough and several other prominent atheists got together to form a consortium to uh, drive out creationism and intelligent design from classrooms. Now think carefully, if I'm in many high school classrooms, government high school classrooms here in Northern Ireland, do you think I have a hundred percent support from all the science teachers? No, in fact I can upset them very quickly by answering questions like, how long does it take coal to form? Answer, it doesn't take time to make coal to form, it takes a process. And if you've got the right process, you can make coal in three minutes. It just is cheaper to dig out of the ground. Do you realise they don't appreciate that so often? Because they've got a story of millions of years of swamps and they think things happen quickly, hey, that's too much like what Genesis says. Richard Dawkins and co. are determined to drive any concept of six days of creation Noah's flood God as creator and author not just out of the public high school classroom notice they don't mention which sort of classroom because they're after theological colleges Christian colleges grammar schools homeschooling because after all if atheism is correct there is no God so don't you Christians dare think you can impose your perverted views on the children. Because don't the children belong to the government? Check. That's how the EU is running. And if the children belong to the government, you have no right to teach them creation. Well, Richard Dawkins was actually in Australia and he was teaching the students at uh, that large university to blaspheme God once a day. Because Richard Dawkins is an atheist. Interesting. Atheists believe, how many gods are there? There are no gods. There's no God. Hmm. Interesting. Do you realise atheists have a distinct view about God's existence? But God has a very distinct view about atheists' existence. For the simple reason that the Bible says, only the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Do you realise the atheist can't help but prove that? I mean, think carefully, if you're an atheist and there is no God, and you're teaching students to blaspheme God once a day, who are they talking to? Do you realise he's just proved the Bible is correct? He's being very foolish. But as a result of the trip to this university, one student came to me afterwards and asked, can I interview for the university newspaper? And I said, yes, you can interview me. And uh, after several hours, this was an absolutely thorough interview, he was really frustrated. He said, I ask you about the Christian faith and you answer me with evidence. What has evidence got to do with faith? You see, most of the students in universities today think fact is there, faith is there, science is there. Religion is there and fact has nothing to do with Christianity. That's how the next generation has been trained to think. He was rather horrified when I told him, look of all the religions on the planet, Christianity is the one religion where the facts actually matter. Because haven't you noticed how the Bible is divided up? When you read about creation, when you read about Noah's flood, when you read about the judgment at Babel, when you read the law of Moses... Isn't it called the Old Testament? And then when you get to Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, isn't it called the New Testament? I wonder why it isn't called the New Storybook. Why isn't it called the Old History Book? Because the reality is testament is a legal term. You get to write out one in your life and it's called your last will and testament and it's all about inheritance, isn't it? Well, so is the Old and the New Testament. The inheritance that the God who created the world is willing to give to all of those who choose to be part of his family. That's what it's about. And you know very well that a legal document such as a last will and testament can't afford an error of history, an error of fact or an error of law. Any mistakes in those three areas and it's null and void. That's why the attacks on Christianity are based on supposed facts. I mean, go down to a local bookshop, see if you can find a book attacking Buddhism on the basis of the evidence. It doesn't exist. Evidence is irrelevant to Buddhism. It's the concept that matters. But Christianity, the evidence is absolutely paramount. Dawkins was in Australia to promote that book. And look what he says about fossils. And we're going to use the Grand Canyon to help answer his question. I challenge anyone to submit out-of-sequence fossils finds that disprove evolution. You know, I love challenges like that. I mean, you can see me and Dawkins on YouTube if you haven't been there. He turned up at one of our meetings. We had an impromptu debate out the front there. And you can see 10-minute clips at a time on YouTube. I challenge anyone to submit out-of-sequence fossil finds that disprove evolution. You know, in the schools and the colleges and the the lectures and that that I've been to in the past few months, this is a very common question I get. At one meeting here in Ireland the other night, someone said, I heard Dawkins interview you and you didn't answer his question about why there aren't any rabbits in the pre-Cambrian rocks. It's, It's the same question. You see, the theory of evolution says we all started out as hydrogen and then we slowly evolved into cells and then we turned into worms and they turned into politicians billions of years later. (laughs) And so you have a sequence of creatures in the rocks and the theory of evolution is based allegedly on that claimed sequence from simple to complex. Okay, back to the Grand Canyon. Let's go walking, great exercise. You see, these mes me right down at the lowest fossil-bearing rocks in the Grand Canyon. These ones here are the Cambrian tapiet sandstone. In fact, you can see the same layer over this side. The top half of the Grand Canyon's got layers in it. The bottom is all cooked and semi-cooked rocks. The fossils start there. Down here, you've got metamorphosed rocks. We're in the Cambrian tapiots. Oh, you don't know what Cambrian means? Well, you know how some English people can't speak Irish? Well, they can't speak Welsh either. And neither could the Romans. And when the Romans got to the border of Wales and they saw those strange entry signs, they couldn't even pronounce C-Y-R-M-U. What does it mean? And neither could the English later on. And the closest they got were things like Cambria or Cumbria. And so the rocks... From Cumbria became known as Cumbrian or Cambrian and really it's a place not a date. The first geologists were largely creationist clergymen and all of these names refer to where the rocks were first studied. Okay there's the tapets. These rocks here are supposed to be up to 2,000 million. These rocks here are supposed to be about 500 million. If you like the Google view Isn't it great we can do... I mean, I couldn't get my aeroplane up that high. But uh, there's me right there. Can you see me just there? Um, And I'm following one of these trails all the way down and doing research right along the edge of this very steep drop. You see, the Grand Canyon comes down in two big steps. It's sort of half a mile from the top to to the top of the first one and then almost straight down another half a mile till you get to the bottom. And of course, what I noticed, and you can see my pen there for scale, is more of these little tracks, tiny ones, little creatures that obviously scurried along and made little tracks. Of course, I've been around them long enough to know one thing. If you look at creatures scurrying along on the beach, the next time a wave comes in, what does it do to all the tracks? Washes them away. So unless this rock set hard quickly, and unless it was covered up, those tracks wouldn't be there. But I was the first person to notice these, uh, not the white sneakers, that's just there for scale, but these things. You see, I looked at that and I thought, that's not carved, that's odd. That's just like something has plodded in the mud and uh, it looks like a footprint. And as I have, um, well you can even see what looks like little, claw. whoops, whoops, come on, this is a new machine, we haven't quite mastered this one yet. It even has what looks like little claw marks in there. And as I went round collecting some of these and looking at these, I uh, was reminded of a Chinese giant salamander. You see its footprints there? You see this shape here? I thought that looks pretty much like some kind of a footprint. And so over the years, we've been back quite a few times. We've made plaster casts, compared them with the footprints there and had a look at what would that shaped foot do in a pile of mud that then went hard quite quickly. But finding one of these is no use. If you want to know whether Robinson Crusoe really has Man Friday somewhere on the island, one footprint is not much help. Two footprints are a lot more helpful and a set of footprints will lead you to Man Friday. So over the years, we have um, followed these. Of course, I do have to tell you that once you get to this rock here, it's illegal in the Grand Canyon to do anything without a permit. And despite repeated applications for permits, the application comes back, you know, if you can prove these footprints are found nowhere else in the canyon, we'll let you excavate here. Oh, what's their issue? Well, these rocks are supposed to be 500 million years old. And if life evolved over millions of years, there were no creatures with legs that needed feet that big, right down at the bottom. Um, You know, in all the years we were applying for permits, we couldn't even get anybody from official to come down and look at them. In fact, it's only in the last series of guides to the Grand Canyon, you'll read the little statement, there are alleged footprints At least we're getting somewhere in the bottom walks of the Grand Canyon. We've been back there, we've photographed, we've mapped, we've plotted, we've uh, lined it all up. Very interesting. And of course as you're doing this you can actually uh, enjoy the heat. You can also um, watch some of the rich tourists coming down the easy way on donkeys. Do you see them here? It's interesting to talk to the wealthy people. This is expensive to do, by the way. it's, um, It's 10 miles from the top down to here. Most people find walking down just as exhausting as walking up. So the rich people hire these donkey caravans and down they come. And then when you talk to them when they get back up, they vow never to do this ever again. Why? Because the road, the little path is about this wide The donkey is about that wide, and when it wiggles this way, it hits the wall. When it wiggles that way, you can see 3,000 feet straight down. And uh, it's not the nicest thing, apparently. See this young man? I was camped in the canyon for a few days, and uh, he was there as well, and we began to talk. And when he discovered I was a Christian, and worse than that in his eyes, I believed God had created, he said, look, there's no evidence creation. I said, well, what do you believe? He said, well, life evolved. I said, well, where's your evidence? He said, all these rocks in the Grand Canyon are the evidence. I said, really, would you come with me and we will test your theory that molecules over millions of years evolved into man. You see, the theory of evolution says fish-like creatures, these fins out of the side somehow turned into legs, the legs got feet and they crawled out and they stood upright on the ground. Trouble was, it didn't happen in the Grand Canyon because those rocks are allegedly too old. Hmm. So I took this young man down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And as we dig and as we dug, what was interesting, by about lunchtime, he was puzzled. You see, if evolution is true, these creatures were this big and they were simple. And yet he would pace backwards and forwards. And I'll let you in a secret. He helped me lift up rocks to look underneath too and we put them back when we were finished. Um, Those footprints go underneath those rocks. In fact, they go clean off the edge. Well, they probably went all the way across before this big hole was cut out. And uh, by the end of the lunch break, he had ceased having any faith in evolution at all. Because you see, the question Dawkins asked... Can you find me any out-of-sequence fossils? This young man was a lot more open than Richard Dawkins. If evolution is true, there shouldn't be creatures with big legs down the bottom. This looks like there are, therefore I've got to rethink. By six o'clock that night as we sat round the campfire cooking food, guess what we started to talk about? You see, he no longer had any problem with believing God could create. He didn't believe it by the time we'd got past supper time. But by about 10 o'clock, man, he said, I've got to go away and rethink all of this. The evidence didn't support evolution at all. Now, look, this is unofficial. We've only got one little claim in in the Grand Canyon guidebook that these are alleged footprints. So I never used these as authoritative at all, but I used these. You see, New Scientist is a fairly authoritative publication and back in March 2000 on page 15, uh, they report, found in the Grand Canyon and in Tennessee, fossil spores similar to present-day liverworts. What on earth are liverworts? Well, that's what liverworts are, aren't they cute? Like tiny little curly bitter lettuce leaves that grow all over a surface on moist rocks usually in some sort of shady environment and they don't have seeds. The sort of water gets on them and spreads little tiny spore-like things all over the place and wherever it's moist, they'll grow up again. What's the significance? Well, the theory is, you see, somehow life formed in the sea and all these creatures at the bottom of the Grand Canyon were all sea creatures. So what on earth are land-dwelling spores... Because after all, life, even the seaweed, came out of the sea somehow and turned into land plants. But not yet. Not in the bottom layers of the Grand Canyon. Trouble is, you actually find the geologist Paul Strother there. He gave his discoveries to the meeting of the Geological Society of America and everybody scratched their head and said, wow, and then promptly has basically ignored it. Richard Dawkins has had his question answered. Oh, but plants plants aren't all that important. Do you know what the usual response is? Oh, that only proves land plants evolved earlier. What do you do next? Okay, go one step further. Nature, April 1966. And you're quite right. You can't look these up online. You have to get the heart. This was before Google. Do you realise that? There was a time before Google. Um, and, And it exists in paper. So you have to go and check these out. and Professor Ed Neelan provided me initially with these references and on page 292 of volume 210 you read this article on the occurrence of pollen and spores in the pre-Cambria. Okay, initially you're dividing up the rocks of England. Most of the first geologists were English a, because they ruled the planet. B, that gave them enough money to afford hammers and beat rocks when they wanted to. And C, they needed to map the rocks to figure out where to put the canals and the railway lines. So all of this is tied in together. And so they start naming the rocks and identifying them. How do we get words like pre-Cambrian? Well, you go to Wales and the bottom layer there is Cambrian. It's got fossils in it. And, and you say, OK, this is Cambrian and up here, well, the Ordovician people used to live here, so we call this Ordovician rock. It's really a joke because the Ordovician rock has got extinct creatures in it and the Ordovician people no longer exist. Oh, you didn't laugh. You don't get geologists' sense of humour. It's as simple as that. But the reality is these are where these names comes from, a mixture of location and a little bit of history. But then you go to places like Australia and you find underneath the rocks they labelled as Cambrian because the fossils are the key, there's another set. So what do you call them now? Under the Cambrian, pre-Cambrian. Okay, so these rocks are now supposed to be over 550 million years old. Notice the author. Notice the date. This is a long time ago. You look it up. In fact, some of you weren't even born back then. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is. Okay, Stanforth says the entry of pollen into its present site defies simple explanation. What's he talking about? Well, usually the pre-Cambrian rocks have been messed up even by their own weights. If you don't understand what I mean, go and get a bucket of sand and fill it up and then put a second bucket on the top and fill it up and each bucket of sand is incredibly heavy. And by the time you get 20 or 30 or 40 buckets of sand, what you discover is the bottom bucket is starting to be deformed by the weight of everything above it. You get a thousand buckets of sand, like the weight of all the sand in the Grand Canyon, and everything under that is being compressed, pressure, do it yourself, press on your hand, heat generates... The heat acts, makes the chemicals react and so many of these are actually sub-cooked rocks. And he goes on to say, By no conceivable physical means could the pollen have entered into, well that's what this means, half-cooked. Volcanic rocks have been melted. Sedimentary rocks laid down in water, metamorphosed, the ones in the middle. Some of you have bought morphing toys for your kids and grandkids. You know the ones that change shape? Metamorphic means the middle shape, not at this end, not at that end, somewhere in the middle. And you say, why is he going into such a big explanation all about trying to explain this paradox? The answer is very simple. Do you remember the dinosaurs that lived way above, according to the evolutionists, way above the rocks of the Grand Canyon? Top rocks of the Grand Canyon don't have any dinosaurs in. They just have a lot of American tourists on top. But above that, you will find the layers. I've been over there in Arizona collecting dinosaur bones from some of the Indian reservations. But the Grand Canyon is still quite a few layers down. Hmm. Grand Canyon, pollen. But pollen is supposed to be from flowers, agreed? And according to the evolutionists, you don't find fossil flowers until the dinosaurs appear. I'll vouch for the fact that fossil flowers exist. I've got dozens of them in my collection. It's interesting. How on earth can you bury a flower quick enough to preserve it? But you do. But you can't have pollen, according to evolution, until the dinosaurs appear. These rocks are roughly 500 to 600 million years or more before the dinosaurs, according to Dawkins, according to William Crawley, according to David Attenborough, according to the high school textbooks and the... What's the name of that group that runs Giant's Causeway? National Trust, isn't it? According to them as well. Because they say the dinosaur rocks are over to the west of Grand's Canyon and they're older than the rocks at the Giant's Causeway. So he spends a lot of time saying, look, the reality is these fossilised pollen are actually in the rocks. Oh, last bit. Pollen floats around in the air, correct? It's a devil of a thing to keep out if you're trying to analyse a rock because you can cut through the rock and you mightn't have known it but there's pollen all through the air and it might settle down and you'll take a picture through a microscope and say, hey, I've just discovered fossil pollen. No, you haven't. You were just dirty and untidy in your preparation. The pollen just fell out of the air. So his problem is, hey, here we've got cooked pollen. The cooked pollen didn't fall out of the air. It's actually in the subcooked rock. Okay, 1966 he said that, the reality is, that means it's nearly 60 years since we've discovered this and nobody has been able to refute Stanforth's work. By the way, Professor Dawkins was a young man in 1962 and then he spent all his career at Oxford and he has access to all of this. And yet he's telling you, find me one fossil, one fossil only, and, and and it'll throw evolution out. He's not interested in the evidence at all. As I said, have a look at him and me versus uh, him versus me on YouTube, and you will get the impression it's not about evidence here. It's about attitude. It's about whether you're willing to humble yourself before God, who was there, or you only want the arrogance of humans who weren't. That's the conflict, really. Um, don't be surprised that uh, Sandswell said that nearly 60 years ago. Professor Thomas Kemp wrote a book in 1999, Oxford University, and look what he says. As has been known and puzzled for well over a century, virtually all the animal phyla and most of the contained classes, first, oh, you wonder what they are? You know how we divide the animals up into groups and subgroups? So you have Homo sapiens. Homo refers to the big group of people. Sapiens is our sub-description. Sapiens means wise. We're we're rather impressed with ourselves, aren't we? Wise homos is what we call ourselves. So um, these are all these groups that we divide the animal kingdom up into. So dogs are the genus Canis, right? And so you've got all of these subgroups here. He says most of them appear as fossils in the bottom layers of areas like the Grand Canyon. See, in that Cambrian, in an extraordinary small window of time. Now, I'll guarantee if you went to high school or you went to university, you learned the fossils appeared in a nice ordered sequence and the simple ones are at the bottom and the complicated ones at the top. I learned that too in first year university. By the time you get to third or fourth or fifth year, you discover it's hogwash. It's always been hogwash. That's why Charles Darwin knew, and why he wrote, even in his book, Origin of Species, the fossils are the worst part of his theory. They're no help to him at all. If they were, the geologists would have invented the theory of evolution, and they never did. And Thomas Kemp, notice what he is, curator of the zoological collections. That's where they keep all this stuff, the dead ones and the live ones he's in a very good position to know what we've actually got. He said, in virtually all cases, a new group appears for the first time. So if you find a fossil frog, it's easy to recognise. It just looks like a dead frog that tried to cross the M1. That's what it looks like. Uh, They appear for the first time in the fossil record with most definitive features already present and practically no known stem group forms. So if you look at the fossil record, most of the groups we're familiar with are actually there right alongside those little footprints in the Cambrian. And then you find them right alongside the dinosaurs. But they don't t- you get the impression that dinosaurs grew feathers and turned into birds, and I'll guarantee they haven't told you yet that you find fossil ducks alongside the dinosaurs. And fossil geese and fossil seabirds? But they should tell you that, because they're not actually telling you the truth if they tell you the fossils go from simple to complex. I love this article here. I've used it many times. National Geographic in the lead up to sort of Darwin's anniversaries a few years ago, they ran quite a few years of lead up. And this one included the article, was Darwin wrong? You want to know what their answer was? No. The evidence for evolution is overwhelming. Well, you know where they stand, don't you? And you know where the National Trust stands and you know where Dawkins and Crawley and the high school curriculum stands? That's their same answer. And they say this is the scientist answer. Well, I have to tell you a few things. You have to give National Geographic full marks for being excellent PR spreaders for their own position. Did you catch the question? I'm sure when this went on sale in the southern half of the USA, many of the Christians in the southern half of the USA rushed out and bought a copy because they wanted to know, was What's he wrong, was he wrong? And then they opened up, in your face, no. And look, the evidence for evolution is overwhelming. Now, come on, let's be honest. Um, one thing most people don't do, ha- have you noticed something about the text here? Come on, be honest, do you read National Geographic? Or are you one of those who just looks at the pictures? Isn't that true? I mean, they're wonderful pictures. And most people miss one thing. Huge print, medium huge, smaller huge. And as you go down the page, what's happening to the size of the print? Okay, let me get you towards the end. And it was in such small print, you never bothered to read it. Illuminating but spotty, the fossil record is like a film of evolution from which 999 out of every 1,000 frames have been lost. Would you watch that movie? I mean, 999 out of 1,000 is 99.9%. Worse still, if you had a theory and you went to your chemistry professor and said, excuse me, professor, I've got a fabulous new theory but this is chemistry, this is real life stuff. And he says, well, where's your evidence? And you say, well, 99% is missing, that doesn't matter. And the professor says, I recommend you take a uh, yoga course. You're not suited for chemistry. Hmm. Okay. Most people never ever saw that. Oh, it's true, by the way, that if you go looking for the evidence in the Grand Canyon right to the bottom layers, A, you will find fossils there that shouldn't be there according to evolution. B, we've known it for ages from the days of Charles Darwin. It's been reinforced over and over again when it comes to fossil spores and fossil pollen that shouldn't be there. And now National Geographic tells you, you can't see it in the whole fossil record, which brings up a rather interesting political problem. There's your museum in Belfast. Evolution is a fact, based on changes seen in fossils. Hmm. You know, I uh, grew up in a non-church family. Evolution was all that I knew. By the time I'd finished a geology degree at university, by the time you'd listen to people say, but Professor, where's the actual evidence? And by the time you've discovered we've known all these fossils in the Grand Canyon for ages, you reach one conclusion. That statement there is a lie and it's always been known to be a lie. The fossils have never been any help to the theory of evolution at all. The Grand Canyon rocks are no help to providing evidence that anything apart from what Genesis says is the history of life on earth. I mean if we can recognise fossil liverworts, you know those lettuce looking plants? right down in the bottom rocks in the Grand Canyon what that tells you is that liverworts have turned into liverworts, have turned into liverworts, have turned into liverworts just like Genesis says God created the plants to do but I'll guarantee you're probably not allowed to even ask questions about hey if jellyfishes in the bottom of the Grand Canyon look like jellyfishes today how does that help evolution? You know I'm doing quite a few schools on this trip and with one of the schools we found a very interesting change in attitudes. Their uh, statement was, you can come into our school but you can't ask the students questions and they will not be allowed to ask you questions. Wow, what are they scared of? What's their problem? Well their problem is, you see, that's a lie, but yet it's the party line in the high school textbook. Evolution is a fact and evolution is based on the fossils when you can just go digging up fossils around Ireland and discover it never has been, and it isn't. Okay, let's um, move on to part three, then Randall's gonna join me for a few moments, and uh, we'll uh, then give you a chance to ask me some questions before we finish off tonight, and they serve tea and coffee, and man, we ate some wonderful donuts beforehand. I don't know what they've got for you, but it was fabulous when we got here. Okay, there we are. The rock's down at the bottom. There's the fossil-bearing ones up the top here, but these ones here are 1.5 billion years old, according to the textbooks. By the time you get down near the river, they're 2 billion years old. By the time you get up there where the sedimentary rocks are, they're 550 million. By the time you get up to where Joe Tourist is, they're 225 million. So in the distance of one mile, you go from 225 million years to 2,000 million years. Let's put that in a diagram in case you're lost in all those big figures, because do you know what I've observed? Most people haven't got a clue what the number one million means. I mean, could you describe what a million pounds was? Most of you have never seen a thousand pounds, correct? A million, what's that mean? Hmm. Okay, what we're gonna do is start with Joe Tourist, And instead of looking at, wow, all these vast layers, we're going to turn it around and say, if that time is real, how fast did the rocks in the Grand Canyon form? And then we've got a punchline to make about that. you see the names here? The top layer here is Permian, then Mississippian, then there's a little bit of Devonian, then there's Cambrian, then there's Precambrian. This is supposed to be 225 million. Down here, this is supposed to be 1,500 million. The distance? Well, roughly half a mile. At that point there, 225. This is the bottom fossil layer, 550 million years old. The names? Well, an English geologist was sent to Russia to do a geological assignment for the Tsar. You do remember that the British monarchy and the Russian monarchy were cousins, don't you? So you got ordered by the queen, you got ordered by the king, you went to Russia. And he studied the rocks around a little place called Perm. And his study led to a whole new series of fossils that we call Permian. Of course, there was a little revolution between England and America. Do you remember that? They said, we're not paying taxes on tea, we're going to drink only coffee. So they poured tea in the harbour and you had the American Battle of Independence and they changed the spelling of things and they even changed the names of rocks. But they still kept the same principle. Which part of America do you think Mississippi and rocks were studied in first? Mississippi. Because these names have nothing to do with millions of years, nothing to do with evolution. They're all to do with where it was studied first. Devonian... Come on, guess which county in England which is famous for scones and jam and cream, you know? It's Devon. And there were lots of fossil fishes there. So that became the hallmark of Devonian and we've already explained Cambrian and Precambrian. OK, half a mile of rock from Joe Tourist down to there, supposedly 225 million years to form. And this is so widely believed, most people never even bother to check it. It just sounds... Well, have you noticed that when politicians have a weak argument, they either yell or they add big numbers? Because you can't follow either, and it just impresses you. Ah, 225 million years. Do you know what we're going to do? We're going to say, if this is real, let's work it backwards. Instead of saying it took 225 million years for this rock to form, we're going to ask how much rock would have formed each year if that time is real? I don't know how good you are at maths, but you can sit down and figure it out that if all that time is how long it took to form half a mile of rock, if you were standing there waiting to become a fossil, it would have taken 7,500 years for those sediments to cover your big toe. By the way, that is not how you can get to be a fossil. Fossils have to be buried before their bones fall apart. That's why we find dinosaurs with their skeletons all together. It's why when you dig up your late great Uncle Henry, he's no longer got it together. His body fell apart shortly after he was dead and buried. You want to be a fossil? You can't be buried slowly. You have to be buried A quickly, B deeply because the bugs and the dogs will get you and C the rock has to set hard enough to keep your bones in the same shape that you died in. Which does give a good question. How long would it take to bury that footprint? You see, that footprint is roughly three inches deep and at 7,500 years per inch, that footprint would have taken approximately 24,000 years to be buried. Question, do you think it would have ever been preserved? I mean, think carefully, you're walking along the beach in the sand, you make a footprint, In 24,000 years, how many tides are going to come in and out? It's not going to happen. If you want to make a footprint, then get Dad to make a new concrete path, and while it's still wet, walk across it, and it will be hard within 24 hours, but that won't preserve it. You see all the pedestrians walking backwards and forwards, and you can see this on the old buildings and the steps. Your feet can even wear an inch off a really hard rock in round about a century. So people walking along the footpath will remove your footprint. You have to not only set the rock hard, you have to cover it before anything else can erode it. This is nonsense. And in case you think I'm exaggerating in my favor, let's remind you of an official gentleman. He wasn't too popular when he wrote this book. His name, Professor Derek Ager, he was Professor of Geology at Swansea University until cuts in the budget basically shut his department down. But he printed that book, The New Catastrophism, published by Cambridge University Press. Now, you don't have a book published by Cambridge University Press and I doubt they'll ever publish one by me. But if you get a book published by Cambridge University Press, you are up there amongst the academic elite. But his book is all about several things. One is, there's no way you can form fossils slowly. Secondly, the old catastrophist You know the first geologist who believed in creation, Noah's Flood, and said Noah's Flood was the start of any catastrophic rapid processes. He said they were on the right track because it's the only way you can make rock. Otherwise, it wears away quicker than you're making it. And he went on to say things like this. If you actually sit down and say it took 300 million years to deposit those rocks in the Grand Canyon, then you turn it round and do the maths in reverse, you get a ludicrous result every time you do this. In fact, um, if you go to the biggest hole on the planet, the one where we've dug all the way down to the bottom granites, and it's about 14,945 feet deep. That's a deep hole, by the way. Um, it supposedly represents six hundred million years of rocks, and you just need to do the same thing. If you have roughly one forty thousandth of a foot per year, or three ten thousandths of an inch per year, how long did all those rock layers take to form? Or better still, how much rock was laid down each year? It would have taken 3,000 years to cover your big toe. Do you know why we dug that hole? We were looking for oil. And oil is interesting because it's the molecules of the long chain hydrocarbons that come from fatty tissues in animals and seashells and, and even in the pine plant family and they break down into shorter chains like octane and pentane and things like that. And many of them are smaller molecules like methane. And the reality is, If you took 3,000 years to cover your big toe, as one geologist said to me, at that rate you'd never trap any oil. Easy to prove. Go and shoot a cow, leave it out in the field. You leave it out in the field, what will the dogs do to it? Eat it. What will the crows do to it? Strip the bones bare. Grandpa comes back in a year's time to collect the fat from the cow to turn it into wax or candles. Is there going to be any left? Nope. If you want to use the fat from the cow and melt it down and then use it for candles or for old-fashioned diesel trucks, did you know you could use to be able to do that? Um, You can make your own fuel if you wanted to. And if you want to use it for that sort of fuel, you can't do it slowly. You have to do it quickly. 3,000 years to cover your big toe. Can you see why Professor Derek Ager said that? If one attempts to calculate the rates of sedimentation in the past, the results are usually ludicrous. Now, let me make a very politically incorrect comment, particularly in reference to the Grand Canyon. You only get ludicrous results from ludicrous theories. I mean, have you had a look at some of the countries that are taxing climate at the moment in the stupid thought that they can control it? I mean, that's not what they're ever going to achieve. But it's ludicrous. I mean, the reality is when you look at so many theories we have, whether it's about economy, aren't there some politicians who think if we just print more money, we'll make the economy work? That's ludicrous. It'll never work. It's not how we got the economy in the first place. And the same is true when it comes to rocks and fossils. You have a ludicrous theory, you'll always get ludicrous results. Okay, can you cope with one more very important point before Randall comes up? says 830 that's we're doing we're doing really well let's try it it's a very grand canyon indeed see the tiny little river down here and what's interesting of course is this is supposed to have carved all of this area out over some 400 kilometers 200 and something miles over 40 kilometers wide uh, nearly 18 miles wide in some places and a mile and a bit deep but as Professor Derek Ager says nowhere in the world Is the record, the geologic layers, or even part of it, anywhere near complete? Even in the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River and the adjacent sections along the Little Colorado, surely the finest record of geological history anywhere on earth, there are huge breaks. Well, I've got to agree the geologic strata in the canyon are impressive, You can see them on quite a few of our Darwin DVDs. We take you there so you can see them for yourself. And the guide will stand here at the corner and say, 500 million years ago, 2,000 million years ago, and he'll tell you a history that's unbelievably incredible. And he never points out a few things. You see, when you get up to where Joe Tourist is, you're still 225 million years from the present. Uh, There's no rocks here. All of those are supposedly missing. Then you get down here and you find the Devonian. Well, there's only little bits of it. And it's basically missing. And then you get down here and you find, well, at that line there, can you do some quick addition? 550 million there, 1,500 million years there. 550 from 1,500 million is 1,000 million, roughly. Agreed? You see, at that point, there's 1,000 million years missing. Now, I I don't for the moment think there's of necessity any rock missing. Here's the problem. Once you invent geology in England, and once you start to invent dates for this, and once you start to make a rule that says the fossils tell you the age of the rock, and then you go to the Grand Canyon, you apply those rules, Devonian in England, Devonian in America, Mississippian in America, Carboniferous in England, same fossils, same date. Therefore, here's how old it is. Trouble is... By the time you do that you get caught out, hey there's a big batch missing here. Now it may not never have been there but you see it's over here so it's got to be over there because after all Britain ruled the world, correct? If we'd have started the geologic history in China we would have had a totally different geologic column. But the Brits ruled the world, the Brit wrote the history and as a result we think there's a thousand million years missing there. And the average geologist says, so? Well, I like to apply it to your bank account. If you went to the bank one day and there was a thousand million pounds missing, would it be significant? (laughs) I'm sure you would be concerned about it. In fact, if I can encourage you to realise, if you're trying to prove the theory of evolution and you've got fossil pollen down here, how do you connect it to plants up there? Oh, for those of you who can't quite follow that, you see, we normally think of the layers as getting there one after the other. And then we try and draw family histories based on the changes in the fossils. And uh, you you strike this issue when it comes to your inheritance. Your grandfather has a 100 million pounds. You know he's going to leave you in his will. So you're praying, Oh, Lord Jesus, take him quickly. He needs to be in heaven. All uh? right? You really only want the money. Then he dies. Your name is on the will. But you're not going to inherit a penny unless you can prove that your father is his son. Correct? That's right. And if you're missing your birth certificate, then you're in serious trouble. One gap in a family tree and your history of inheritance is shot. The reality is by the time you get all the way down here, Look, there's 45 million years missing just under there. There's 150 million years missing there. There's 1,000 million years missing there. By the time you get down to the bottom, there's a total of 1,420 million years missing out of 2,000. Sorry, out of 1,550 million years down the bottom, 95%. Now, I'll bet you never came across that figure in your high school textbook because they're telling you that these layers are incredible records of history. But you take that seriously and say, hang on, if this is that old, there's actually 95% of the record missing. So uh, there's my conclusion after many years of studying it. All these so-called vast amounts of time are not actually in the rocks, they're in people's heads. In fact, you can easily prove this. Get a textbook from the 1950s and see how old these rocks are. Then get a textbook from the 1960s and see how old these rocks are and you will be surprised how quickly they age. I've been following one fossil in the Natural History Museum that was first shipped there from Australia in 1910 and it was 180 million years of age. Then when I first tracked it down in 1987, it was 200 million years of age. Then I went back in 1999 and it was 230 million years of age. And you ladies think you're ageing fast. <laughs> ah. time is not in the rocks, it's in people's heads. In fact, that's why Professor Derek Ager, and I totally agree with him, he's one of the few uh, non-creation geologists that I really, really respect because he said, enough theory, let's go and read the rocks. Let's go out into the field and check. And he says, it may seem paradoxical, but to me, the gaps probably cover most of Earth's history. It was during the breaks that most of the events probably occurred. This was when most animals and plants lived out their short lives or evolved into new forms. Now did you read what he said? Certainly it is a paradox, but most of the rock record is actually what's not there. Can you see why we'd be unpopular with people who think the rock evidence is rock solid. No, he said most of it is gaps. But it was during the breaks, the gaps, which is most of it, that's when everything happened. And if that's when everything happened, it was in the missing bits that you find evolution. But if the missing bits is most of it, how much evidence for evolution do you have? None. And if you don't have evidence for evolution and the rock record is mostly missing, how much evidence do you have for the vast millions of years? None. I mean, come with me to Giant's Causeway. I've been and watched volcanoes going off. We have one series of rocks not far from where I went to university and in three days you have 300 feet of volcanic rock deposited. You don't need time to deposit rocks, you need a process. You've probably got three or four weeks of volcanic rocks up at Giant's Causeway. That's it folks. You don't have vast millions of years of rocks hmm, you don't need time to make rocks, you need a process. And as I keep telling people, volcanoes don't do slow. That's why they're a problem. They only do fast and medium fast. Ah, remember National Geographic? Put the two together. If the fossil record is missing 99.9% and the rock record is missing up to 95%, do you realise the argument for evolution over millions of years is not very good at all? Do you realise why I um, am sometimes not too popular when I go to a science classroom and just point out a few little simple things like this? Because you see, it's reputation that matters to most teachers. I can't blame the teachers, they're not in a position to check most of this. But I can blame the professors. Like the one from Lancaster who came to one of my meetings on the geologic record and he stood up at the end of the meeting and he's going purple! I'm serious, he, I thought he was going to burst a valve and brains were going to come out of his ears or something. And, and he said, if, if, if what you say is right, I've wasted my entire career. Yes, sir. <laughs> hmm. Don't you think it's time to get it right? Because I tell you what, that's humbling. It's humiliating. In fact, it even is if you're not a Christian and you have to admit I am a sinner and I do need this God as my saviour. It really is humbling, but it's necessary. That's why I've reached that conclusion ages ago. It's not the evidence that disagrees with the biblical record of six-day creation and Noah's flood over the past six or seven thousand years. It's the theories and opinions of men who have willfully chosen to remove Moses from science and then they pretend they're dealing with facts when they claim it's the evidence which disproves the biblical account. As I said to the students today at school, and I keep saying to university students, and I said it on William Crawley's program and that, you want to check anything, ask, is this theory that you're throwing at me or is it fact? One of the kids said today, what do you think of the Big Bang Theory? The reality is Big Bang Theory disagrees with just about everything in Genesis. But when someone throws it at me, I say, come back when it's the Big Bang fact. I'm not worried about your theories at all. The theory of evolution disagrees with just about everything between Genesis and Malachi, but it's not a fact. That's why you're not evolving. That's why since I've seen you three years ago, I'm doing the opposite. I'm actually going down the hill. I'm devolving, I'm degenerating. Man, that's the real history of change on the planet. Well, listen, Randall's going to come up in a moment. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to ask me questions. I'm going to grab some water. Randall's going to tell you roughly what we're going to be doing next, where he can spot us, etc. So, Randall, come on out and talk. Hi, how are you? Um, just in relation to um, dinosaurs and their extinction, um, I just have a little bit of trouble with um, the ark and all two of every animal mm-hmm. being included. And where the dinosaurs get parked in evolution or, well, creation. Um, that's, that's my question. OK, good. Uh, did they get stuck with the Irish unicorn is the real issue here and uh, not make it on board? Um, OK, what you'll find is, remember the story that Genesis records on the 600th year in the, of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month, and it reads just like a diary. You know, it's not like once upon a time there was a boat made, right? And then it tells you exactly how big the boat is, albeit not in modern dimensions. It mentions it in cubits. Cubits is from there to there. And so if Noah was bigger than me, the boat was bigger than you think. So there's the first limitation most people don't build into their thinking. We think Noah's only our size and the American translations of the Bible are more guilty of that than anything else because they have the ark 450 feet long and they mean American feet. All right? So the ark is measured in cubits and the bigger Noah was, the bigger the cubit was. Okay, there's first point. Secondly, since God told Noah how big to build the boat, I think God knew how small to send the animals. So to give you some illustrations of some of the things I'm sure God would have had to think through. Remember the old question? If two rabbits got on Noah's Ark, how many got off? All right. So if you think carefully, in the world before Noah's day, the people lived vast ages. So the implication is the world was so good, their whole lifespan was stretched. But what most people don't notice is most of them didn't start having kids till they were well over 100. So their whole lifespan was stretched. So if they live longer, the rabbits live longer. So they didn't start breeding after six weeks, right? They probably lived much longer than today and they didn't start breeding until they were 10 years of age. So problem number one is easily solved. You don't send mature sexual adults. You send immature juveniles. Okay, now that then raises, if you're not going to send the really big ones, how small is the smallest you can send? Well, the interesting thing is, despite the size dinosaurs many of them grew to, they always started out out of the same size eggs you get from crocodiles. Crocodiles are in the Archaeosaurus family. Their eggs are about that big, no matter how long they grow. And what you find is, we dig up dinosaur eggs. And they were all roughly the same sort of size, no matter how big they ended up. So point number two is, I suspect God sent A, immature juveniles and B, smaller versions of the same. Not dwarf ones, but ones that were small enough to actually fit two of every kind on board. Thirdly, you will find that why do many of those big reptiles have tails? We have discovered in Australia that crocodiles have tails not to beat you to death... They can use them for swimming but we discovered the hard way we caught one giant crocodile. And somebody said, I'm going to take this to my my crocodile collection zoo. And so they put this crocodile, they took him out of his water, took him a long way away and they discovered crocodiles have tempers. They throw tantrums. This one sulked, and it refused to eat. And of course they were really worried this guy's going to die. He refused to eat for 18 months and then he got okay I'm done and away he got up and walked away and in all that time he lived on the food in his tail and so what you find is their big tails are actually food reservoirs and they're born with a tail big enough to keep them alive for the next six or seven weeks even if they don't get any food. And so I suspect A, God sent them small enough so that sexual reproduction was not an issue and Noah didn't have to run around keeping the female dogs from the male dogs or anything like that, right? What he had to do was get them on board, settle them down and because they were the right size... We want them big enough to be able to have enough food in their tails, etc., the land-dwelling ones, yet small enough so they're not reproductive and they're not going to fight each other, etc. So therefore, I suspect they came on board fully fed and then did what that crocodile did. (coughs) Went to sleep. I mean, crocodiles don't normally hibernate but that guy did, he just put himself, shut himself down, went to sleep basically for the next 18 months. So I suspect if you had to put big land-dwelling dinosaurs on board, that's exactly what you'd do. Pick the right size one, since you've designed the boat, you've told Noah how big, how long, how many floors, you know how small to send the animals. When it comes to getting off the ark, think carefully. Since Noah's day, or a bit closer, since the last 400 years, Isn't it true we've seen a lot of creatures die out? In fact don't the kids learn, hey worry about the polar bear, if all the ice melts the polar bears going to become extinct. We've only seen extinction on this planet, we've never seen evolution. And in reality when you say, well whose fault is most of these extinctions? And the answer almost always is us. I mean we go to Australia, we shoot things and if they're not moving we chop them down. I mean, that's what we're like, sadly. And you go to New Zealand, and just before Captain Cook arrived, the Maoris had eaten the last big giant mower bird. Now there's none of them. So, if you want to say what happened to the giant mower birds that stood up to this ceiling, we ate them off the planet. The same is true for the giant oxen in Europe, the giant buffalo in North America, the giant mammoths. You can see cave paintings of us throwing spears at them. And they're so huge. So in reality, most of the creatures that were gigantic, that in historic times have disappeared, has always been due to us. Of course, you go back a bit further and you find some fascinating stories that are regarded today as myth and legend. Remember what St George went round killing? Dragons. Dragons. And the funny thing is the latest dinosaur that's been found in the USA in 2006 is so like a dragon, it's been labelled Draco Rex hogwartsia. Right? The king of the dragons out of Harry Potter's stories, right? Because it just looks like a dragon. So perhaps St George went around actually killing dinosaurs. Except we've forgotten that so long ago, we think that's just story time. But I can imagine my great-great-grandchildren coming to me and I'll be telling them, when I was a boy, we had 20 foot long crocodiles. And they'll say, come on, Grandpa, pull the other leg because between me and them, we've killed them all Uh, and we can do it easily. But I can take you to where we can dig up fossil crocodiles and the head is out that back door and the tail is through this wall and they stood 12 feet tall. Now that's a crocodile, but they don't grow that big anymore and we can kill the little ones. I don't think we could have killed those big ones. So I suspect by St George's Day, an interesting problem had occurred. We weren't living very long. Nothing was living very long, the climate, everything had declined but it affects them more than us in one very simple way. With all the reptiles we find today in Australia, the big relatives of the dinosaurs, etc, they grow every day of their life as long as they live. So if they lived a lot longer, they would have been a lot bigger. They live shorter, they're smaller. We stay roughly the same size. I'm in a better environment, we can grow bigger. A worse environment will shrink, some of you know that, remember when Vietnamese started to move around the planet after the war in Vietnam, they were this big. Have a look at their grandchildren in England today, they're up there courtesy of high quality protein like McDonald's, Um, that's better than rice and a bit of fish once a week, I tell you. So that's what I suspect is a short version. You'll find there's some really helpful books and DVDs on dinosaurs down there uh, that you can follow that up. But again, don't look for the word dinosaur in the Bible. It wasn't invented till 1841, and the Bible was around a long time like before that. But look for monsters. Look for dragons that had sharp teeth and spines, and you'll find them in abundance, both from Genesis through to the book of Revelation, where the last great dragon is mentioned, and they use the Greek word draco as in the one we've just dug up in 2006? Good question. You had your hand up up there. If you look at stars, which are more than 10, 20 light years away, or 20,000 light years away, what are you looking at? Something okay. that never happened or never was there? hmm It's a good question. Um, with most of these things that appear to be a contradiction, what I've learned to do is ask, first of all, is what you're telling me a fact? Or is it a series of interpretations that are presented as a fact? So a good example occurred with reference to stars just the other day in the press. Uh, Every Thursday, you may have noticed, they put a summary in many of the main newspapers of the latest discoveries that will be mentioned the next day in the popular science press uh, or the very academic science press. And this article was all about a massive water cloud found in space where a new star was forming. Hang on, hang on, let's get this straight. What we've actually observed is a light reaction from the the electronic bonding in hydrogen and oxygen. That's what we've observed. We interpret it as water, and it's probably a pretty sound interpretation. But the minute you tell me this is where a star is forming, you're talking not fact at all. Because according to the theory of star formation, they're supposed to take millions of years. So we've never observed a star forming. We couldn't. It just takes too long according to the theory. So what we've seen is a blob of water in space that's acting as a gas. So distinguish between the interpretation versus the facts. Okay, how do we find distances to stars? There's the first thing to check on. Some of you may do navigation, you know, you take your ship out to sea, you get your little compass out, you get your little dividers, you measure the angle to that headland and this headland, and, and you work out mathematically from your triangle where you are. In Earth, you get the biggest triangle, you make the edge of the orbits of the, the, the Earth, and you take a triangle out to whatever star you're interested in. But of course, the further away the star is, the thinner the triangle gets to, to a point where you can't actually do any maths with it anymore. So after that, you have to ask, how do we measure the distances beyond that? The reality is, what you do is you have a theory, and your theory is related to the age of the star, which is related to the Big Bang Theory, which is related to how far out from the centre it should be, which is related to your interpretation of redshift and blueshift. Ah, Now let's get down to how many interpretations were involved there. Let's just take the last one because the whole Big Bang Theory which gives us all these values, Hubble's constant, etc, etc, what you'll find is all of these are not facts, they're actually interpretations. And if you like astronomy and you want to see alternative interpretations to this, look up the astronomer ARP. He's not popular with his colleagues because he said redshift is not caused by light actually being stretched as stars travel away. Redshift is caused by light getting old. Now the minute you interpret light that way, the whole shape of the universe changes. And he's incredibly unpopular. So here's what you'll find. Firstly, most of these distances beyond the point of triangulation are not facts but interpretations. But even if they were facts... I've got no problem with an immense-sized universe because the universe reflects the nature of God and I think the immensity of the universe is designed to remind us, hey, God's even bigger than that. It's designed to impress us. So we will never know the size of this, this system we're working in. In fact, there's a statement in Jeremiah where God says, if you can count the stars and if you can measure the heavens, I will cancel my covenant with David. You think, wow, that's pretty impressive, right? So we can't do it, even though we try. Secondly, you will find that here's the real problem. I had a professor of physics come up to me and say, it can't be as simple as just six days, six or seven thousand years ago. And I said, why not, Madam Professor? She was physics, University of Manchester. She said, well, the Big Bang Theory says. I said, there's the problem. You come back to me when it's a Big Bang fact, not a Big Bang Theory. And in your Big Bang theory, basically all your assumptions contradict what's in Genesis. It's not the data, but the interpretations. And here's the most serious one. Genesis 1 says, And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and morning were the first day. And that's three days before there are any stars. So the position of Genesis is the light was there before the stars. The position of the Big Bang Theory is the star was there before the light. So it's not the data which is causing the problem, but your, sta- sorry, your starting point by faith. They assume the star was there first. In fact, as I've suggested, if any of you want a Nobel Prize and a good PhD, here's a little dilemma for you to solve. We geologists love leasing out our coal mines to physicists for catching neutrinos. Why do we do that? Well it's dark, no other radiation gets down there but in reality what you've got is these little particles coming from places like the sun and our theory is the sun is a star, it's generated all the light and it comes from nuclear fission and nuclear fusion and therefore it should have X number of little particles coming from it. Great, let's go and check. Problem: After 30 years we still don't get the right number. Something's wrong with our story about how the sun works. No, you won't hear this in Year 8 astronomy. It's presented as solid proven fact when it's anything but that. Here's my suggestion for a solution. Since God made the light first and the sun afterwards, if you can figure out how much energy contribution is made, particularly through having the light separate from the body, then you will solve this problem and not only get a PhD and a Nobel Prize, you'll probably find lots of commercial applications for use of non-Sun-originated particles. Um, but I'm, I'm not a physicist, so I can just suggest the problems. But there is the real cause of the lemma. It's where you think the light came from and which was there first. OK, I'm going to stop there because we could get a lot deeper and I can already see some eyes glazing over when we start mentioning neutrinos and things like that. So you and I might want to talk about that one a bit later. Randall, come up. And